Greetings, everyone. This is a Sound Health Options show with Richard Talk to Me Guy, and Sherry Edwards is off building the portal, which is coming along really nicely. SoundHealthPortal.com. Go check out some of the current campaigns they have going, where you can run a free vocal trial to get some information on neuroplasticity, stem cells, biodiet, and a few others. You can also use the Nano Voice now at the Sound Health Portal, and that's really great to have handy. Check any number of things. I use it quite a bit for checking allergies or checking how I, my body's doing with various supplements. Really nice to have it online and available at any time. We will get started with Dale Carson, author of A Rest of Yourself, right after this short announcement by our sponsor. SoundHealthPortal.com The body's vocal indicators move with every frequency set that goes from your brain to any part of your body. We have a Dr. Russ Rudy who came to us on a scooter. He had multiple sclerosis. Frequencies of his nerves were dead from the waist down. I'm speaking as a physician and a patient. Uh, I went down the medical road first. I didn't get any answers that were acceptable to me. You know, when they hear something like, I'm going to listen to you speak, and I'm going to analyze, and I'm going to play tones for you, make it better, it just sounds so foreign to what we're expecting. And it took us from November of one year to May of the next, and it regrew the nerves from his waist down. So now we can believe it because it was science. I, I've seen it work in so many cases. Oh, I'm proof of it. I mean, nobody, nobody five or six years ago would expect me to be doing what I am today. Join us at SoundHealthPortal.com. So things that are out there that we don't have very good treatment for, why shouldn't they be allowed to try something different? Dale Carson, ex-police officer who has almost four decades of FBI, police, SWAT, and private investigation. Dale is a great guest. We had, as Sherry mentioned, we had him on before, and he's wonderful. The author of Arrest Proof Yourself, and he's going to give us his current thinking on uh, how to protect ourselves, how to keep from being arrested, how to deal with authorities, how to, um, I don't know why this phrase is come al- coming in, but it's, uh, you know, get along. Good morning, Dale. Welcome. Thank you for having me on again. I'm delighted to be here. Dale, it says in your introduction that you sent us, well, I actually took this off of Amazon. He's presently a practicing criminal defense attorney. Did you change sides? I did, I did, but it's better to be said I am a, a not a criminal attorney, but a defense attorney, because both have strange connotations, right? Right. It also says in that... Um, introduction about your book that you're a perfect position to reveal the brutal truth about how police work, their methods, dirty tricks, and motivations. He stresses that cops do not receive promotions or accolades for keeping the peace or resolving disputes by negotiation, but are evaluated strictly on the number of citations, issues, arrests made, especially felonies. So tell us well, I think I think what we don't understand about law enforcement and policing, we grew up in an American environment where we are taught that uh, police are the good guys, the guys who wear the white hats, and they're to be uh, spoken to uh, kindly and to be permitted to do things that they think are in our best interest. 
And, of course, that has tremendous implications in a society that has basically surrendered its right to to lead its own lives and for self-reliance and turned us into a country that simply does what people tell us to do. And that's the frightening component of this, because policing really, oddly enough, is not just about protecting and serving. A part of that's true. Uh, police officers, if you, you have a real problem, you pick up the phone and call them, at some point they will come and they will sort out the problem. And that doesn't necessarily mean help you, but they will sort out the problem. What I learned as a police officer in Miami that this is all really an interesting sport model. And you can think about this in terms of a, a football game or a baseball game or, or a basketball game. This is about scoring points and winning. And for police, winning has other implications because winning means, quote, putting the bad guys in jail. And and you can become a hero doing that, finding the bad guy, the rapist, the robber, the murderer, and putting them in jail. But what we all forget in this is there's a broad net being cast over the entire population, and it's being filtered through a bizarre process called car stops. Just like the NSA reviews all the emails from the cable uh, the network cables between countries in a similar fashion. Policing checks people out based on predominantly car stops and citizen encounters. And what the car stop involves is in, you can't drive a car in the United States, which remember, most of the United States doesn't have mass transit. In France and Paris and areas where there's a lot of mass transit, you know, there's not an opportunity for police to stop and say, let me see your driver's license, because you're not driving a car. And so in the United States, of course, you have to drive a car to get around from place to place. So as you're driving, you get stopped by police because nobody can drive perfectly. And there are always reasons to stop somebody in a car stop. And as the police officer approaches you, he asks you a number of questions. He may see your driver's license. I need to see your insurance card. What are you doing in the area? And that's where that interface takes on a different dimension, because the overall objective of law enforcement is to score these points that I just mentioned, and you got to win the game. And the way you win that game, and winning the game, let me be real specific about what that means. That means being promoted from a street officer, which is the lowest on the, of the pecking order, to detective, which is actually the highest on the pecking order. I mean, you only have to look around at the current movies in the United States to see that almost every one of them involves a detective, sorting out some crime, solving a problem, protecting the world from disaster, doing all those kinds of things. So when that happens, and to become a detective, you do that statistically, simply by pushing the button on the number of arrests and the type of arrests. So if you, if I arrest 10 people today and you only arrest one, I'm the better police officer. But if over the course of a year you make 250 arrests and I only make 45, clearly you're the better police officer. That's how it's done. And, and of course, each arrest has a different value point. If you simply stop somebody and arrest them because they don't have a driver's license on them, then that's a minor arrest. It's called a traffic arrest. If, however, you arrest somebody that has an outstanding warrant, that's pretty impressive. Or if you arrest somebody who's just left the scene of a, a rape, well, you're a top dog. So all of those different arrests have different point structures, and that's really how you're promoted. Now, what that means is that in an encounter with law enforcement, 
you are being looked over to determine whether or not you can be a statistical accomplishment. In other words, how many points might you be if I arrest you? And that's an odd perspective for law enforcement to have, and we don't ordinarily think of it in those terms. But in the United States, many, many people are arrested. And the key to this problem is that once you're arrested, even if the arrest is false, even if it's incorrect, even if uh, the police officer later says, you know, I really shouldn't have arrested that person, which is unlikely to occur, you are permanently in what I, an electronic database. And that electronic database is not stored entirely by the state. It is also stored by the federal government. And if you remember your civics class back in the, for me, back in the 50s, you know, the, there are two separate governments, the state government and the federal government. And because they have sovereignty, you can't tell, the state government can't tell the federal government what to do, and vice versa. The only way the federal government can tell the state government what to do is if the federal government says, we won't give you money if you don't do what we want you to do. But they don't have any ability to make it happen by use of force. So what happens when you get plugged in this system and you get fingerprinted or your DNA gets taken, more horrible still, the DNA, but to the extent that you're identified and processed through the system, you can never be taken out of it. So let's say your girlfriend claims or your boyfriend claims that you've taken a knife and assaulted them, even though it's untrue. And in fact, you were 400 miles from there at a church meeting during the process of this alleged assault. So the police interview the alleged victim. They find her statement or his statement credible. They simply come, and on probable cause, they arrest you. The charging document says attempted murder. Now, you would think, and I would think, that you could remove that, you could extract that from the, the databases that exist both in NCIC and in Florida, FCIC, and that's the National Criminal Information Index, and in Florida, it's the Florida Criminal Information Index. But the bottom line is it can't be removed. So the next time you're stopped on a traffic stop, or your car is seen driving down the road and the tag is stored in some electronic database, it's going to hook those two arrests up, the arrests up with your tag. And it's going to show an, a person who's been charged with attempted murder is now driving in my neighborhood. So the police stop you, even though all of that is entirely a fabrication and false, they now think that you are an individual who is violent and you're subject to entirely different treatment. Now, that's just on the criminal government side. When an employer, a potential employer, runs your name through a database, and there are many of them, and finds out that you're an attempted murderer, do you think they're going to be likely to hire you? And the answer is not only no, but heck no. So those are really the problems with modern-day law enforcement. And beyond that, once you're arrested, you fall into a system that's simply designed to extract money from you, whether it's the the bail bondsman that extracts money from you to get you out of jail, or your defense attorney who extracts money from you to prevent you from going to prison, all of those things have a tremendous impact on your life, all because of one person, and that's the street officer who encounters you in an open environment where you have a right to be. And that's the concern of the book. When I was a cop in Miami, I arrested literally thousands of people, many of them for just minor infractions. But as a result of that, I was the top dog in Miami back in the day. And that is little solace now when I look back over what I accomplished, which has put a whole bunch of people 
into this, what I call the electronic plantation, the database that stores information on citizens for arrests, and really have had a hugely negative impact on their lives. And that's not who I am. If anything, I want to have a positive impact on your life, and that's why I wrote the book. On page 143, you talk about what to do if you get arrested. So can well, there, there's a simple thing to do when you get arrested. All right, once that's going to happen, you see that's going to happen. As a defense attorney, I want you to just say nothing, because any time you add to the information law enforcement has, they are in a better position to be informed about whether or not you are convictable. And by convictable, I mean, once you're arrested, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be prosecuted. You could very easily be arrested and the case dropped. Again, you're still going to be in the system in this horrible way. But even if you're in the system, you're not being prosecuted and the case has been thrown out. So the best thing you can do for yourself is call your attorney, tell the officer that you don't want to make a statement, that you really want to talk to your attorney. And this is hugely important in these stand-your-ground self-defense cases. What I instruct my clients to say in the event of the necessary use of, of deadly force to protect yourself, okay, self-defense, stand your ground. The, the, the thing that you want to do, even in a horrible event like that happens, you're assaulted, you're attacked by somebody, you happen to be carrying a gun or you exercise deadly force through some other means and you kill somebody. You're to call the police. You're to say, there has been a shooting or there has been an attack. I'm the victim. I used uh, deadly force. Send a supervisor in an ambulance and then hang up the phone. You don't want to be caught in a circumstance where there are other people talking around you, that information being collected in a recorded uh, environment with the, the 911 tape and then being memorialized and you hearing it later. Then when police arrive, you're to say, I was attacked, I defended myself, I will make a statement as soon as I've had an opportunity to talk to my lawyer, and that's it. We seem to think in, in our environment that we can talk our way out of trouble. And ordinarily that might be true with your great aunt or your grandmother or a family friend, but it is not true when it comes to the government. When it comes to the government, the less you say, the better off you are. On page 143 of um, your book, Arrest Proof Yourself, there's this guy. His eyes are squinched closed. His mouth is tightly closed. He's got his hands clutching his pants. Um, and you give instructions that that's the stance we should take and do nothing else. Right. But that's right. And, and, and what that's designed to do is to prevent you from doing a funny thing called flailing. Now, not everybody knows what the term flailing means, but it means throwing your arms around. I'm, and while I'm talking to you on the phone, my hand is spinning around. You can't see it because I'm holding the phone in one hand, but my arm, left arm spinning around as I talk to you, as I gesticulate, okay? If I were to accidentally hit a police officer while gesticulating in that manner, that's called battery on a law enforcement officer, okay? And so what you need to do is just keep your hands outside your pockets, uh, your thumb linked in your uh, in your pant pocket for you gals. I don't know where you'd keep it, but just down at your side. And you just don't respond to any verbal assault by law enforcement, any questioning 
one of the things that we used to do or I have seen be done, I've seen this done, I've never done this myself, so to be in the clear here, you simply approach someone and get within just nose to nose with somebody. That will cause people to act out and touch you because you've invaded their space. But remember, you're law enforcement. So as soon as they touch you, they've touched the state, the government, and they're in deep trouble. So the effort has to be to just don't do anything that can be any way construed as assaulting the officer. When we had Cliff Richardson on here last week, he was going through the TSA line, and he just politely said, no, thank you, you do not have permission to touch my junk. And a woman came and took his arm and bent it up behind him, and he said, he's a big wrestler type, and she actually hurt him, and he thought it was in the hopes of him fighting back. He said his arm was sore for two to three weeks. She was really applying pressure. What do you do when they're hurting you like that and you've done nothing? Well, I mean, there are two options. One is to man up and do like your friend did and do nothing. Okay. And I have an attorney friend who just fights with TSA every time he goes through uh, a flight process and he says, I refuse to be physically searched. And they will bring over a local police officer to watch them while they, in fact, uh, fondle his genitalia. It's, it's absolutely horrifying. So the other option is to scream out in pain and agony and, and really put on a display to draw attention to their conduct. All of that information is recorded. And the more you act out, but again, if you act out too much and you accidentally strike the officer or the TSA agent, you're going to be in a world of trouble. Okay? And typically what I see is this. In a circumstance where an individual is injured by law enforcement, okay, in, in the ordinary course of law enforcement's activity, you're injured. You will be charged with resisting arrest with violence. Now, there are two reasons for doing that. One is to protect the officer. Clearly, uh, you would not have been injured had you not assaulted the officer, although they don't temporally follow one another necessarily. And the other thing is that in civil litigation cases, if you were to sue them civilly individually, they are pretty well protected if you ever plead guilty or plead out to an assault charge on a police officer. So, and another clear point about all of this, remember TSA is voluntary. When you get on an airplane, because our options are to travel by horse and buggy, bicycle, or car, right? You're, you're submitting yourself to inspection by the government, by the voluntary act of getting on a plane and flying. And that it really is the problem. But when it comes to law enforcement in the street, I'm driving down the road. I've got my blinker stuck on because I'm thinking about something else. That's a violation of the law. I get stopped. That's, that's a, an encounter of a different type. It's not voluntary. We've got two, uh, three questions here about why you became an attorney and what states you live in or can work in. And then there's one about car stops. So take those in whatever order you'd like. Sure. You want to, I don't have access to a, a screen to look at, uh, Cherry. So can you read the questions to me? I'd be happy to respond to them. Okay. Why did you decide to become an attorney instead of a police officer? 
and we're well, looking I, at your site, so you can uh, we can move anywhere on your site in support cool. of this. Well, I, the reason I became a police officer to begin with, just let me tell you, the reason I became my dad was a sheriff, my uh, my mother was a physician, an OBGYN in in Jacksonville, Florida. Those people were public servants. And I guess I took my cue, like many of us do, from our parents, and I really wanted to help people. And I graduated from a Presbyterian college in North Carolina, St. Andrews. And after I did so, I, I really wanted to help people. I mean, it was a, a, a point of pride to try to help people through their difficult time, not to control them, but just to provide them some help. And I thought that's what I was doing being a cop in Miami. And one time I had stopped a guy who uh, was clearly uh, poor, he was a, a, a cook's helper in a Chinese restaurant, and he was transporting about a, a 40-gallon container of wonton soup from one side of Miami to another, and he had a dog in the car with him. And I stopped him. He didn't have a driver's license, and uh, one of my old sergeants was watching me. I did not know this at the time, but I'd stopped him, and I was trying to figure out what in the world to do with him. I could issue him a ticket for no driver's license, but in Miami in the time, you were required to put somebody in jail who didn't have a driver's license, which makes perfect sense from an administrative standpoint. So I looked at him, and he had a dog in the car. If I were going to arrest him, I'd have to tow the car, which meant I had to call animal control, which meant that I'd have to wait for animal control to get there to take the dog. And then what was I going to do with the 40 quarts of soup? So I just let him go. I did. I confess. I let him go. And I said, get out of here. And I was standing there beside my car when the sergeant came up. And he grabbed me by the collar and he said, I don't care who you think you are. If you don't start putting people in jail, I'm going to have your job. And I was young. I was 23. I was just a kid. And I, but I understood that. I understood that my job from now on would put everybody in jail for anything I possibly could. And I followed that that uh, strategy until I stopped being a cop in Miami. And it's what made me famous down there. But it was probably, in hindsight, the wrong thing to do. But it is what government wants law enforcement to do, is to put people in jail. It's real simple. So I became a defense attorney after I retired from the FBI because there really is no crossover between being in law enforcement and being something after law enforcement. You can be a private investigator, uh, which is, if you'll remember, all the famous private investigator stories, Magnum P.I. for one, the guy didn't live in his own house. He didn't own his own car. He didn't have anything because, quite frankly, as a private investigator, typically you have nothing. People don't pay you large sums of money to go help them out in horrible situations. So there's no money in it. And so once I realized that it was, in fact, the attorneys who were making all the money on the outside, I determined that that's probably what I ought to do. And I encourage any of you who are listening today, going through law school, although this seems pretty daunting, is not all that difficult, frankly. Cost some money, that's true. But once you get the ticket, uh, you know, you can really reach out and help people, which we do in our practice every day. My practice is different than most everyone else's practice in law. We love our clients. We're delighted to be in a position to help them, and we stay in contact with them. If you hire us, you call us, I talk to you today, not a week from now. We're on your team. 
and, and it makes a big difference in, in how people deal with us as a, a group of lawyers. And I have four lawyers that work for me, or three lawyers and a disbarred lawyer. So I got a really good team there. Well, is policing about revenue generation? Well, of course it is. All of the government's about revenue generation. When you surrender your right to protect yourself to someone else because you don't know any better, you know, it costs. In Jacksonville, Florida, 60% of the revenue gathered by the city of Jacksonville goes to law enforcement and firefighting. Now, if you move to a place where they told you that you had to pay 60% of your income to live in a safe environment, wouldn't you find someplace else to live? Of course you would. Yeah. It's absurd. But but that's the way it all works. And we, you know, it's, uh, it was I was listening to your original conversation, your initial conversation about men and protecting family and things of that. And frankly, you know, if men are not needed anymore in this environment to protect the families. That's something that is given to law enforcement. We're not supposed to do anything at all. You're supposed to see a problem, pick up the phone, call the police, and hide inside your door and do nothing. And that is so counter to what it really means to be a man. To be a man is to have an immediate impact on your environment to protect and defend your family and the people you love and are responsible for. And we are largely denied that process and forced into a position of being a second-class citizen by saying, you know, look, Dale, you really don't need a gun. You don't need to worry about anything. You just pay money to the government, and we're going to take care of everything. Pick up the phone, dial 911 if you got a problem. Well, I'm offended by that. I didn't come into this world to let some government petocrat tell me how I ought to live my life and what I ought to do and how I ought to behave. That's the whole concept of being a free American, which has largely been cut in half by the policies of the U.S. government in the last 20 years. But the only way to resolve that is to live someplace where you don't have any contact with the outside environment, meaning city government. See, you live in a rural area where you know the farmers who are near you and the people that, that are real true Americans, and you're not overrun with people who, from an urban environment who you know nothing about. Because we typically live in environments now where we don't know anything at all about our next-door neighbor. And our next-door neighbor today could move and a new neighbor come in tomorrow, whereas historically in this country that didn't happen. We lived, grew up in neighborhoods and lived in environments where we knew people for generations. Do you work any place except um, Florida? This is a question have, direct from the audience. I have cases in California right now, and I do in Georgia. I do work in other states. You know, if any of your listeners have a question uh, about a particular circumstance, we may be able to, and I say may, be able to find them someone uh, that we consider qualified and a good, not only a good litigator but a fair one, meaning they're not the most expensive in the neighborhood uh, because a lot of a lot of lawyers charge what I consider excessive fees. A lot of people simply can't afford them. So we will be happy to try to refer uh, these matters to, to lawyers in other states uh, where we are not licensed to practice. Dale, um, there are so many questions, but Richard um, is biting his tongue. He has a question for you. I wanted to get a little historical context in that uh, Sherry asked part of this question about uh, being a profit center. Do you think it's changed, the pressure to put people in jail in a certain way has, has changed or increased in your history of being in the 
in that world for a long time. Since oh, there's privatiz- no question. Privatization of jails, especially in California, all of our jail systems are privatized. So now they've become profit centers for corporations. Of and, of course, we know what the deal of a corporation is, is to make more money. And so right, it seems right, like right, there would be even more pressure for the legal, the law, the arresting agents, to be more pressurized to, yeah, get them into jail as soon as possible almost. Is that – am sure. I excused? No, 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 you're right on target. I, and isn't it horrifying to think of a thing called a privatized jail? Give me a break. I mean, that's horrifying. You know, if, if, if government is limited, okay, if it's limited, and there's a jail that has a capacity of 400 people, they'll exceed it. But let's just say for the sake of argument that it's just limited to 400 people. How many people can they arrest? 400, right? Just That's it. It's limited. But when you open up the private enterprise to have more jails to put store people in, then the number is not self-limiting. And, and so, as a consequence, they arrest more people. Every person that they arrest, let me give you a, a tremendous example that I love to use. In our jail in Jacksonville, Florida, okay, there's a phone system. And so, if you wanted to make it, you're a prisoner, and you want to make a phone call. Well, of course, you can't reach in your pocket and pull out a quarter and put it in the, in the phone, right? So, the only way for you to make a phone call is to use a global telink. And global telink is a phone system that has phones installed in our jail, and and I'm sure they have phones installed in other jails. And part of the operation is that they record every call to and from the jail, which we argue should never happen, but it does in any event, under the guise of protecting the citizens from attempted jail breaks and things such as that. But every call that's made out of that jail is made with the outside party paying for it, okay? And it costs maybe $2.75 a phone call for 10 minutes. When they call lawyers, it's not supposed to be recorded, but who's to know, right? So those phone calls are recorded. Guess how much money, this is a number from four years ago, how much money the jail made in one year just from the phone calls? And the answer is $2.5 million just the phone calls. So they actually split that with uh, Global Telling. So Global Telling got their 50% and the jail got their 50% and they went into the general revenue fund. Another example of that, in the United States, a, a uh, bad check is a criminal offense. In other countries, it's civil, which is where it should be, but it's criminal here. So the state attorney's office in Jacksonville, and these numbers are from four years ago when I ran for public office and lost, but from four years ago, there's a group that handles bad checks for the state attorney's office, and you have to pay a fine. And for, if you write a bad check, of course, you have to pay a fine to the state attorney's office. You have to pay a fine to the uh, the person to whom you negotiated wrote the check, and you have to pay the check. They made a million dollars a year out of the fines in that segment of the state attorney's office. When you pay a bond, you have to pay 10% to the bondsman, plus you have to come up with collateral in an amount sufficient to cover the entire amount of bond. So if you had $500,000 and your bond was $500,000, you could pay $500,000 to the clerk of the court, and when you got through with your case, you'd get your $500,000 back. But 
If you're poor, like most of us are, and we don't have $500,000 sitting in the bank somewhere, and your bond's $500,000, your option is to stay in jail until your matter is fully resolved in the courts, or you can pay a bail bondsman $50,000 that you will never get back. So there's another tremendous cost. We looked one time at the cost of probation, and those sorts of costs are absolutely phenomenal to a given individual costing upwards of $30,000 over a 10-year sentence to pay for probation. I mean, the system is calibrated to take money out of the poorest of the poor and make them continue to be in insolvent circumstances. And, you know, it, it, what even fundamentally is worse than this, you have a young man who's picked up on a shoplifting charge, okay? Let's just say for the sake of argument that, sh that he's shoplifting food for his family they are starving, okay? They put him in jail. He's now in custody. He can't make bond because, of course, he has no money, and his bond set it at $10,000. So he's got to pay $1,000 to a bondsman to get out. During the course of his incarceration, which is going to last about 21 days at least before the state attorney's office makes a prosecutorial decision, during that 21 days, he does not any income at all if he is able to work. He's going to lose his apartment, his house. He can't feed his family. All the horrible things that happen to an individual who's incarcerated, right or, rightly or wrongly, they can no longer participate in taking care of things. So who does that fall on? That falls on all the rest of us who have to take it up in public subsistence. So it's a horrible system. It doesn't work well in my estimation, and it needs sub substantial change. But, of course, change in government, as you know, is very difficult, and that's the mission creep that we're seeing in the NSA and in the government lately. Don't worry. I will protect you. Just give me all your freedom, and I'll take care of you, and I'll make a decision about what's best for you because surely you're an idiot and you don't know what's best for you yourself. I'll tell you. This, this is incredible, and it reminds me of one of the things happening here in Ohio. If you're arrested, and even if you're not guilty, you are charged a daily charge to be in jail, and if you're not guilty, you still pay it after you get out. That's right. No, that's well. I mean, why would we want people to have a free place to stay, even though it's locked in and you don't have access to television, phone, or Internet? I mean, it absolutely is horrifying. Uh, that that would be the case, but it is. And uh, that's certainly not unusual uh, across the country. We see that. And uh, the, the cost of assigning charges to individuals who absolutely can't pay it, it becomes ultimately what's known as a civil judgment. So if they ever start to get their heads above water, someone can try to collect that money from them. And it's so difficult to survive today for a lot of the folks who are out of work and just are having trouble surviving trying to feed their families. It's a shame. It's much more money than if uh, you went to a hotel. It's like $120 a day or something. Well, I, I'm familiar with Florida, and it's like $15 a day. So maybe we're not getting as good of food as they do in Ohio. I don't know. <laughs> the other thing <laughs> happening here is that if you're arrested, not found guilty, but if you're arrested, before they put you in a general population, they can shoot you up with all these vaccinations. Well, I wasn't aware of that. that that's something that's new to me. Um, one of the things that concerns me as well, and this is perhaps the most egregious thing the government does, is take your DNA. 
And uh, there's just been a recent court ruling, Supreme Court ruling, that said it's okay. If you get arrested, uh, the, the first thing they can do is take your DNA. Well, that's horrible to me. That's much worse than a fingerprint. That identifies things we didn't even know about ourselves, whether we're subject to cancer, whether a whole host of things, our ethnic heritage, all of those things are identified in our chromosome strands. And I certainly, for one, don't want the government to have that information. It doesn't have any need for it. But again, government simply grows. And then they need a, a petocrat to run the program for DNA collecting and sampling. There's another government employee, and it just goes on and on. When I was in the FBI, there was the FBI, the BATF, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. There was the CIA, NSA, and ICE, which was immigration. Right? That was it. Now we've got this whole new group called Homeland Security. Who are they, and why are all they all of a sudden necessary? I mean, it seemed to have morphed from the TSA, which were people inspecting us before we got on aircraft, to this Homeland Security, which sounds vaguely Nazi to me. I mean, it frightens me in that respect that the government simply explodes in its orientation toward its citizens and decides for itself, self-certifying, if you will, what they should be doing, and it's not controlled by us and, and in any way. And you can't think that Congress controls it because those people don't know, have any idea what they're doing, really. What would you have told people in this Boston military shakedown? What would have you told them to do? Well, you know, that's a real problem. Of course, you can stand in your doorway and say you're not coming in here. You've just been balled over uh, by the sheer force and magnitude of the people looking for these folks. That's a frightening circumstance. Originally, I looked at it, quite frankly, as though here we were as Americans cooperating and finding these bad guys, right? Subsequently, I read stories about people whose homes were invaded without any permission or authorization. Uh, it's of interest to note that there was nothing illegal found that caused subsequent prosecutions, and maybe they just overlooked stuff that they found. I'm not so sure. But all of us have a right to have our homes free from government intrusion. Justice Brandeis said that our most important right, and this is going to sound really strange, our most important right is the right to be let alone by government. And Brandeis, in 1928, that's 84 years ago, 85 years ago, warned in a, in a decision called Olmstead v. United States. He warned that, quite frankly, we one day will enter the time when the government can look at our secret papers and we won't know they're doing that. And that was written in 1928. And it's here today, and it's been here for some time. And that was a concern to Brandeis, who wrote what's known as the dissenting opinion in the Olmstead case, which meant that he lost. And that original case dealt with wiretapping uh, people who were uh, bringing illegal alcohol into the country. And so it's more from 1928 to now where they're hooked into the cables, that the, uh, the uh, cables, the undersea cables, fiber optic cables that go between countries are hooked into those, reviewing all the data that's transmitted. Now, what they're doing with it, that's anybody's guess. Are they protecting us? I'm sure they are. And I think that they probably believe that they're doing the right thing. I don't agree with that, but they think they're doing the right thing. And that's another thing uh, Brandeis says in this particular Olmstead case. He says that the thing to fear the most is men of zeal without understanding. 
who are trying to do beneficent things, good things. Because when people try to do good things, we give them a waiver. We say, okay, well, you know, he was really just trying to help. Now, come on, the fact that he read all your emails for the last two years, he didn't mean any harm. I mean, what harm can come from that? And the answer is that we have a right to be let alone by government, and it's a very important right. Well, what about, what would you say to people about this IRS invasion, people being targeted because they're against what the present administration is doing? The government itself, whether it's Obama or Bush, it, it just doesn't matter who it is. The government itself wants to survive, okay? And it's going to do anything it can to survive. It doesn't matter that it kills the host. It wants to survive. So expansive government just does that. Anytime that they see that they could be embarrassed either politically or militarily or in any way at all, it moves to prevent that disclosure or that injury to its own entity. So, you know, it's like it's like uh, uh, we have caterpillars that turn into butterflies, and uh, there's a particular fly that goes around and puts its poison, you know, another egg inside these these chrysalis, and the chrysalis dies from the inside. And frankly, that's the fly protecting its own existence by killing the host. And so. It worries me that we just stand by because we're not organized, any of us. And, of course, if if the government can segregate us out one from the other, they can easily destroy us. They can take the IRS or whatever mechanism they care to use and destroy us. So we need to band together. We need to be together as a politically active group that can push our agenda as opposed to letting everybody else push their agenda on us, which is what's happening. People are going to want your book, and you have updated it, I understand. What did you add? I did. We added some some, some information on surveillance, government surveillance, uh, and it's been, I think it'll come out in another two months. So we actually, it's kind of interesting, we actually forecasted what was going to happen with the drones and other things, uh, the computerization, uh, and, and that's the bigger concern. If you had to have a bunch of individual clerks sitting around tables reading transcripts. It would take them generations to actually do something that it takes a computer half a second to do these days. So we updated information about that. We provided some information on self-defense, some recommendations on if you are going to carry a handgun, what it ought to be, and those kinds of things. It's an interesting read, uh, and I can recommend the book uh, it, because People have taken an interest in it. It does provide some background information on how to protect yourself. But the most important thing in protecting yourself always is information. It's knowledge. And that's why I assume people listen to your program. Uh, It's information that that helps us protect our families and ourselves. And that sort of information that's in that book gives you the formula. Why is it that, that a former cop would tell you cops are not just good people wanting to serve and protect. If they are involved in a system, they, police officers are themselves involved in a system that wants you to arrest people. And once you get in that system and you you get the approbation that you receive from making multiple arrests and things like that, you become become enamored of the system and it's something you want to do. You, it's fun. It's, it's being, a, being a young officer and chasing people in the streets, man, that's a real kick. Come on. And when you get to 
congratulated for doing it. You feel proud. You're wearing a white hat. You're protecting the public. But you don't understand the sinister backgrounds of it because as a young man, we're not perhaps as bright as we ought to be. Is, is the book going to be the same name? And tell me why on Amazon, and this is a question from our chat, why the book ships in one to three months? Uh, it doesn't ship in one to three months. That may be the new version that's shipping in one to three months. You can get them in a day pretty much from Amazon.com. And, and, and the title is the same. Uh, it just says second edition on the newer variety. And I, I, I don't know... Uh, when the actual new book will be published, that's something that's beyond the scope of what I know about these publishers. It's published by Chicago Press out of Chicago, and they're just uh, really good people. They, they, if you look at their catalog for Chicago Review Press, they have a lot of interesting publications, books that wouldn't necessarily hit the bestsellers list but are still interesting reads and, and important to your own knowledge base or, or, or sold by that company. There are. I want to jump in if I. I want to jump in and ask a, a sort of an off a sidebar question, but it goes into the category of search and seizure, and it has to do with well, it's seizure in general. However, the, in this particular question, it has to do with the issue of marijuana being an illegal substance in most states. And what is your thoughts on, you know, if you get busted, I don't mean necessarily just for marijuana because I've known other people that have had all their, you know, like airplanes and property and warehouses seized because somebody was using one of their airplanes to transport an illegal substance. The owner of all of that had nothing to do with the illegal substance, and yet the cops came in and held all of his goods for almost a year and a half and caused them to go into bankruptcy. The point of origin, yeah, well, there, the person using the plane was importing marijuana. Well, let me tell you about seizures. The, the seizures cases are to be heard before the criminal case because the government and the law is that they understand that there's the standard for seizing your material and equipment is not beyond a reasonable doubt. It is more likely than not. So there's a lower standard, but the government has to affirmatively prove that you knew or should have known that it was being used for that purpose. So anybody who has something seized, you've got to remember that the government has an obligation to notify you that it's being seized, and you have to respond. If you fail to respond, it's going to be forfeited. That's the process. They seize it first and then make an effort to forfeit it. So I, I encourage anyone who's had something seized, you be sure to respond on a timely basis. Otherwise, you're subject to losing it altogether, and that the courts are required to address all of these things soon as opposed to later, because to the extent that you're an innocent party, you don't need to have your stuff taken from you and withheld from you for a year because of the concomitant cost with having something uh, that you use to make money kept from you. So you're saying a good lawyer would have taken care of that? Well, I, there are lawyers, and this is odd, but there are lawyers who deal specifically, I have one that I'm affiliated with, who deals with nothing but seizure law nothing but seizure law. So uh, it's a very unique area of the law uh, that, that must be addressed swiftly. You can't just kind of think, well, wait a minute, they, they've arrested me, but they can't seize my stuff. Not true. And again, the standards are different. To put you in prison, they've got to prove the facts beyond a reasonable doubt. Just take your stuff. They've only got to be able to show that it's likely 
the probable cause. There is no probable cause. It's slightly better than probable cause. It is the civil standard, which is more likely than not, or 51%. Um, we only have a few minutes left, and there's so many questions we'll probably go over if you can stay with us for 10 more minutes or so. But what's the difference in being arrested in your home for something you suspect and you're not even the party they're looking for? How would you respond to that as opposed well, to, as opposed the way to a car stop in the middle of nowhere? All right, well, here are the, here are the rules about uh, uh, arrest warrants. If, I have an, if I'm a law enforcement officer and I have an arrest warrant for you, okay, but you're at somebody else's house, not your own, but at somebody else's house, I can't use that search warrant to get to you in somebody else's house. I have to have a search warrant and an a search warrant and an arrest warrant. Okay, so our houses are supposed to be sacrosanct when it comes to invasion by the government. Now, because we keep things in the cloud, now it's not that way. Uh, we have stuff that are outside our house. I don't have big file cabinets with all my emails in the house here. Uh, so, but but your question is. If, you, if you're in your own house and somebody has an arrest warrant and comes into your house and an arrest warrant for you and you live there, then they can come into your house. They can search it for criminal material, okay, and people, uh, and they can arrest you. So you don't want there to be an arrest warrant. And an arrest warrant does another odd thing. If a police officer goes and gets an arrest warrant, the judge who signs that arrest warrant is signing off on it, saying that there's probable cause for you to be arrested, okay? And it makes it very difficult for a defense attorney to argue that the you were unlawfully arrested. And that's the thing that we occasionally do. We, we find that police officers arrest people that they shouldn't arrest. There was no probable cause for or they didn't follow the protocol for the general orders, which require that they conduct some amount of investigation rather than simply believing your ex-spouse who says that you assaulted them with a handgun. So uh, that, that's another critical point. We have a question from the audience that Children's Services came to her door to get her children, and it wasn't even her address. It was somebody else that they were looking for, but they still took her children. How should she have responded? Well, I, you know, DCAF, Department of Children and Family Services, has almost, um, they are very powerful. They are very, very powerful, and they don't represent the government and this is going to sound kind of odd because they are the government, they represent the children. So if the children were present, they probably have any necessary authority to go in and take the children. Now, the bigger question is why they would want to take the children, and oftentimes you either have ex-spouses or ex-family members who put forth uh, libelous allegations about how someone's behaving with a child or a family member, and that causes the police to have, or the Department of Children and Family Services, to have an investigative interest. And until they resolve that investigative interest, they're not going to let you alone. So the best thing you can do is, you know, be in a circumstance where they cannot, they physically cannot get to you. But if they bring law enforcement with them, and again, they represent the children in those narrow circumstances because they're there to protect the children. And frankly, we want our children to be protected. It's just that we want to be the ones protecting them. We don't want some outside authority 
telling us how they ought to be protected or what they ought to be taught in school or, or, or what we believe they should be, uh, how we believe they should be raised. Well, this lady is saying her address was East Madison. They wanted the person on West Madison. was nothing, no related, and they still took her children. Well, I mean, if they, if they were looking for her children and they got her children, then they've accomplished their mission. And quite frankly, there's little that can be done to, to set that matter right now. Uh, and, and the only thing you can do, again, if you lived uh, in the hills of Utah and you were 50 miles from everybody else, you'd know that they were coming and you could take the necessary, make the necessary response by leaving the area. But that's no longer true in an urban environment. I mean, we're all living on top of one another. And so if they get an address wrong, probably the power of the search warrant is minimized and they could probably be sued for searching an area that they weren't permitted to search. But I'm sure the mom's interest is in the children and their welfare, not in trying to, to and here's the other thing. People who find themselves in this situation, they're unmoneyed typically. They don't have an account with $50,000 cash sitting in it that they can go out and hire an attorney. And an attorney is typically not going to take a case like this on a contingency fee basis. In other words, you don't have to put up any money, and you only get something if I win. That's not how that works. Because there are cases where that's true, because the lawyer's gambling as well on the success of the case. And if you don't have a case where there's going to be some success, uh, it's pointless for a lawyer to take it. And we have cases where we've lost money when we've taken cases and we've done the depositions and we've gotten the experts and we've done the autopsies that are necessary in certain cases, and we never get a dime out of it. So we've actually wasted ten or $15,000 trying to help somebody, and they're not responsible for that debt, and I pay my debts as soon as they come due. So somebody else made money off of us, and that was a poor decision on my part to take a case like that. So if you're going to an attorney, don't expect him to simply take the case based on a contingency where you don't have to put up any money. What I have found over my life is that if you got to have some skin in the game. In other words, if you want a lawyer to do something and you're not willing to pay to have that done, you probably don't have a real big interest in it. Uh, one of our listeners wants to know if you have updated in your new book coming uh, anything about what you should not say or do about emails and telephone calls. How do we protect ourselves? They just want to know if it's going to be in the new book because they know we're running. No, I, you know, we, we, we did not address that. Um, candidly, I'm afraid we have reached the point where there is nothing you can do. There's no code that the government can't break. There's no way that you can continue to use the Internet to communicate between one another without the government having the ability to look at that communication. Really, the only thing is, and, and this is a critical point, and, and you, you, you'll find this kind of humorous, I think. I was having breakfast with my wife this morning, and we were both looking at our smartphones while we were having breakfast, and I recognized that we were failing to, to do the most fundamental human thing, which is to just talk to one another. How beautiful to have another human being sitting across from you that's at least marginally interested in what you have to say. And here I am looking at my smartphone. Well, that's just crazy. So face-to-face -face conversations are the best thing to do. And, and if you're really concerned about a face-to-face -face conversation, you better pat the other person down to make sure they're not carrying a tape recorder with them. <laughs> Good grief. You're, 
you're showing us absolutely we're not free anymore and our only choice is to protect uh, where we are, who we are, what what we are, and there's just not um, not a lot we can do except just... Well, no, no, Terry, there is a lot we can do. And what it is is we have to get politically connected and organized to groups of people who feel like we do, and we've got to fund those political organizations so that they can get the publicity that they need. Because, listen, I've been reading the uh, commentary on a lot of the NSA stuff, and almost everyone is saying, I don't trust the government. I believe they're doing things that are wrong. We've got to do something about it. What do we do? So people are looking for a way to manage this problem. I mean, look, do you trust the people in Congress? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer no. for it. I don't trust them. I don't trust them. And, and so Congress needs to be just, we need to reelect people who follow what we believe, the things we believe. We need to put those people in office. And we need to accept the funny thing, Jerry, and here's the funny thing that we need to accept, is, look, everybody dies, okay? Nobody gets out of this life alive, okay? Check out times vary, but we, we're all going, all right? And so do you live under tyranny, or do you do what's politically necessary in order to make the changes that, that we all require? And it's, there's a certain risk to living in the world. There's a certain risk that some yokel is going to put a bomb in, in a, uh, a pressure cooker near where you're running a race. But you know what? I'm willing to accept that potential small, small, small risk in exchange for my freedom and not having to look over my shoulder for the government. Because clearly what they're doing has what's known as a chilling effect. People will stop talking about anything negative about the government because they're afraid they're going to be targeted by the IRS targeted by the NSA and frightened away from what it means to be an American. And, and that's a reality. That's a reality that that could happen. So what do we do? We have to band together into proper political organizations that have power and encourage other people to do the same thing. I, as one, am not just prepared to sit around and let other people make hard decisions for me. I think that's why God put me on the planet, was to help my family and people I love make proper decisions based on having the correct facts and the necessary tools to do that. Do you find out people leave you alone when they find out you're a lawyer? I don't tell people I'm a lawyer. Uh, when I'm not in court, when I, uh, I, I uh, work in the woods... I uh, I have a woodworking shop, I wear bib overalls, and I try not to be one of these people that is simply full of themselves because of what they do. I think we're all equal. I perform a different service than perhaps you do, but, you know, we're all equal. We work hard to try to, to take care of our families and the friends that we love and care about. Uh, I'm no more special than anybody else. I put my pants on the same way every other guy does. Wisdom. Sounds like you have a lot of it. Uh, we've got a question here. Is your book on, um, what did she say, for the hearing impaired where it talks to you? It's on Kindle. Does Kindle well, you know, I tried to get it on Audible. I've written Audible, and if any of your members would, would, would do me the service of uh, contacting Audible by, uh, you know, Audible is, is, is books on tape, basically and ask them to, to have it read or have it, I would be delighted to read the book uh, for Audible. I have written them. I'd like to have it on Audible. Quite frankly, many of the books that I read today are on Audible because it's so convenient. When I'm riding in the car or whatever I'm doing, I can listen to a book. 
uh, and I don't have to just sit quietly somewhere, which I do not do well, sit quietly somewhere. I'm a bit uh, uh, obsessive-compulsive. So, and, and maybe uh, people would, on hearing from a number of people, they would entertain the idea of making it available on tape. Is audible.com? Yeah, it is, audible.com. Okay, By guys. By the way, it's a great service. They've got really good uh, uh, nonfiction books about what's going on in the world. For those of you who want to get in touch with Dale Carson, attorney at law and just all-around good guy, go to his site, dalecarsonlaw.com. There's a phone number there. There's a consulting, um, what do you call it, setup right on the front of each page. And if you're not in Florida, don't let that stop you because he can probably put you in touch with somebody else that can help. And I'd like to ask two things. Um, Dale, one, when the new book comes out, you let us know so we can um, announce it on our website and to all of our people. Absolutely. And two, if you are going to set up any kind of classes or a group who has the same kind of justice orientation that you do, I want to be a part of it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that, Sherry. There's a lot of thank yous coming in from the um, audience here. We're going to make this a feature on our website and a feature also on our blog talk radio. Uh, I think you've got the right thing going, and you make me want to be a lawyer. <laughs> Anybody can do it. It's not that difficult. How long did it take? It took me about two and a half years, and I was working at the same time. And, and when you grow older... You study harder because you don't want to be embarrassed by a bunch of uh, youngsters who don't have their brains filled with anything uh, uh, except the ability to absorb more information. I mean, I'm I'm the uh, oldest guy in the class. I'm worried about whether my kid's going to eat a hot dog or not, you know. They don't have any kids, and they're not worried about anything. Well, I certainly, I I certainly want to talk to you about that. I was thinking about paralegal. But if it's only two and a half years to become an attorney, I'm all for it. I'm just tired of being run over, and I'm going to get in touch with you, too. I'd be delighted to talk to you. Richard, thank you for being a part of this and being co-host. From the DNA swabbing, which I think is just a horrific thing that's occurring. Now, there's so many directions we can go. We'll definitely have to have you back as soon as your new book is issued. Not a problem. I'm delighted to do that, Richard. And uh, I have a case out in California right now where a Russian guy was beaten nearly to death by law enforcement. So they're everywhere, oddly and sadly, sadly. There are things on this chat. We are deeply in debt to you, Richard and Sherry, for having Mr. Carson on. I think you should bring him on many times, any time there is something new that needs to be provided to the populace. That's high praise, Dale, from our our group. Well, thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed doing it. It's a lot of fun, and and we've got to get the word out. You know, that's the big thing. We will support you in any way we can. Absolutely. You all have a great Sunday. We're going to get in the garden. Have a great day now. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Dale. Right now. Thanks, Sherry.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.